Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. The Red Sea is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, but now Houthi fighters in Yemen are attacking vessels, forcing major companies to reroute operations. So how will this impact global trade and what can be done to secure the Red Sea? I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. In Ottawa is Thomas Junot, a non-resident fellow at the Sanaa Center for Strategic Studies. In Brussels is James Moran, a former EU ambassador to Egypt, Jordan, and Yemen. And in Plymouth is Stavros Karamperidis, a lecturer in maritime economics at the University of Plymouth and head of the Maritime Transport Research Group. Thank you, um, gentlemen, for joining us. Stavros, first question goes to you. How much damage does this do to global trade? Oh, okay. <laughs> Straight to the not $1 million question, but the $1 billion <laughs> question. First of all, thanks for having me, Paul, here. It's a great honor to be. And as we were discussing uh, earlier on, it's a, it's a great fact that we're trying to have that coverage to a very important topic for the global trade. Uh, it has a big uh, damage. You know, if we go back nearly two years ago, as you may remember, for the blockage of the Suez Canal back in March 2021, uh, from that area is on a daily basis, we have 9.5 billion of trade passing. So as you can imagine, uh, that is causing a lot of impact to the overall trade, the global trade, and is also increasing the length of the journey. So it's approximately 10 extra days for, for vessels carrying the goods from Asia to Europe. And by that, we're having more costs in terms of the transportation of the goods. And of course, they're going to be more delayed. So as you can imagine, that has a huge knock-on effect to the overall supply chains. Are you able to, so that our viewers can, can get a concrete sense of what this means for them, for the consumer, this means that you can have energy, consumer goods that are stuck on ships for an extra two weeks compared to what was scheduled. How much does that drive up the cost of everything that's on that ship, for instance? It's kind of difficult to give you a number now because, you know, it's like we have to see, first of all, how the freight rates are going to react. We've seen them increasing. We've also seen the oil price getting a bit of increase because of that. Uh, I think if the overall situation escalates and continues like that, uh, then we're going to see an increase in both in the oil and also because, as we know, nearly 50% of the operational expenditure of the vessels is oil. So if the oil goes up, the mm. freight rates will go up by definition. And we also have to add on top the extra voyage time. So that means that the overall transportation of the goods is going to be more lengthy and more, more uh, delayed, depending, of course, on the various sectors. So, for instance, if we're talking about containers, that is going to increase another 10 days, as we said earlier on. But the good news is that we're ending the Christmas season, so it's going to be capacity in the system. Uh, on the other side, I think for uh, for tankers, that's not going to be the case because tankers were already uh, loaded, and um, 
that's going to push uh, faster the increase in the freight rates for, for oil. So, you know, we have to see those specific segments and we I cannot give you an ag aggregate number, but definitely okay. we're going to see an increase. About the timing of this, when would we expect to actually see the difference in prices? You said because this is the Christmas season, there's capacity in the, in the markets. Um, does that mean that, what, in January or would it be February when you start seeing the, the price increase really hit consumers? Uh, to, to be frank, you, you have to consider that if we're talking about containers at the moment, mm. uh, that means that, uh, you know, the goods that we have ordered for Christmas, they have been already delivered. You know, it's the 19th of December. Sure. It's a couple of days before Christmas, so everything is kind of being delivered. So we're heading towards the quiet season. January and February is the quiet season. So that means there is capacity in the container sector to absorb any kind of extra uh, need. Of course, after, you know, um, we have to think in the lead time, you know, when you're placing an order, uh, it takes nearly 35 days to come from Asia to Europe. So we have to consider that when the trade is going to re re recover after uh, the Chinese New Year, when it's going to be around end of February and things like that, uh, then the trade is start picking up again. And that means that the orders we're going to place late January, that is going to have a knock-on effect in, in container shipping. The, the one we're going to see more obvious. Of course, we're going to see a small increase in the overall freight rate because of the additional uh, costs that, as I said, for the traveling of the, for the transportation of the goods. But I think after February, March, we're going to see a bigger effect if the overall situation continues, which mm -hmm. I hope it, it wouldn't. Okay, I'm with you. And that's really interesting. And it's an interesting reminder that, that, that due to the nature of how this works, there is by definition a lag in between the time when there's a disruption in the supply chain, such as what we're seeing now in the, in the um, Southern Red Sea, and the moment when the, the end consumers will actually feel it. Um, that is good to know at the outset of this conversation. Toma, what is the end game for the Houthis here? I'm getting all the big questions out of the way at the top of the show. <laughs> That's a difficult question to answer also because the Houthis are not very transparent. We don't know mm. exactly what it is they're trying to do. But generally speaking, we can say that there's a number of objectives that they have. One of them has got to be domestic. And, and in media conversations, we focus a lot on the regional or strategic dimension. But there's also a domestic dimension. The Houthis uh, have de facto won the civil war in Yemen. Not completely, mm. but in practice, they have. They are now the de facto governing authority in the capital in the northwest. They control something like 60% of the population, they've won. Uh, now they are trying to move into a bit of a post-war phase. Um, they are in discussions with Saudi Arabia to formalize the Saudi withdrawal. That post-war phase will be challenging for the Houthis. The economy is a mess. The Houthis have shown to be abysmal managers of the economy. So one aspect here that we do have to keep in mind is that they're probably trying to mobilize pro-Palestinian feeling within the Yemeni population that is under their control, but also in parts of the country that they don't control. That has to be an objective. But beyond the domestic element, there's also significantly a regional, a regional element. Having won the civil war in Yemen, the Houthis feel very much emboldened, and they want to establish themselves as a regional power. And we see that in their relations with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. We see that in them uh, sending missiles and drone attacks on Israel and also now on the Red Sea. So I, ultimately, I think we have to combine both the regional and the domestic um, element. Okay, we're going to dig into that with James. And by the way, in this conversation, we're going to ping pong, obviously, between the effects on trade and the, the regional implications, because, because obviously these two are connected. It's the Houthis' ability to 
strangle the trade in the Red Sea, which is such an important waterway, as we, as we laid out at the top of the show, which gives them this importance regionally and which could have regional consequences. And that, my question, that James, is my question to you. With this U.S.-led coalition now in, in the Red Sea, um, it already was. You know, the U.S. Fifth Fleet was, is based in Bahrain, so they were around there. But are we moving now closer to a regional war? I'm not sure about that, but uh, okay. I think um, we'll have to, uh, have to watch it very carefully in the months to come. Um, but this uh, international maritime cooperation uh, is interesting. It's not the first time we've seen it in the Gulf of Aden. In the past, of course, we had the operations against Somali pirates, uh, which turned out to be successful in the end. There was the European uh, Operation Atalanta. Uh, the Chinese joined in in a pretty significant way. Uh, and I suspect uh, and I hear that uh, outreach at the moment uh, is going to not only European countries and Gulf countries, but also to China, which has a big interest in calming down things uh, in the Red Sea, given the enormous trade uh, that flows through there uh, to uh, European markets and vice versa. So the strong interest coming from a lot of different parts of the area. should also mention Egypt, of course, which is... Uh, risks losing major, much-needed foreign exchange revenues from the Suez Canal, uh, so long as ships are being um, sent around uh, the Cape of Good Hope. So a, a coalition of interest here is, uh, is pretty mm. strong uh, against uh, the actions that the Houthis have taken. The exception, of course, is Iran. Uh, Iran being a big supporter of the Houthis, uh, the main arms supplier to the Houthis, and also with an interest probably in... Uh, spurring destabilization in the region, given its position vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel and so on. But the overwhelming interest seems to me to be a common one, and I think we're going to see quite a lot of action there, not just from the West, but also maybe from the Asian side too. You mentioned Iran. What is the level of involvement that they have in Houthi operations, specifically in the Houthis, you know, putting so much military pressure on this uh, shipping lane? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been an important factor militarily, but um, uh, we shouldn't imagine the Houthis are uh, the uh, creatures of Iran. Uh, the Houthis have their own agenda uh, for reasons also uh, well uh, laid out by your previous speaker there domestically. They're very mm -hmm. keen to consolidate their position with the population at home uh, and whatever that takes. Um, and the Iranians are in an alliance with them. Yes, uh, there is the uh, Shia connection between the two, although they're very different branches of the uh, Shia Muslim faith, uh, so that shouldn't be overdone either. Um, so, yes, I mean, there is, um, there is a common interest with Iran, but Iran doesn't necessarily control what the Houthis do. Mm. Okay. You say there's a convergence of interest. This next question goes to Stavros. If there's a convergence of interest, so many people, and this makes intuitive sense, so many countries um, have an interest in this waterway remaining safe and shielded from Houthi attacks. And that's why uh, the U.S. has set up this multinational force. Is it possible, is it possible to shield, their, given that there are 20,000 ships that pass through this, um, uh, the, the, this uh, naval corridor every year, is it possible to shield them from Houthi attacks oh. with, the, with the coalition as it's been set up? That's a, you know, that's a, that's an operational question 
yes. for the military people. And to be okay. honest, I'm not having that kind of background, but I'll try to, to answer from previous experience, as uh, James, I think, mentioned earlier well, on. We, we did uh, learn know, some we, we lessons had... on that from the anti-piracy efforts, though. Exactly. That's where I was going. You know, okay. we, we had the operation, uh, the NATO shields uh, down there, uh, when they managed to uh, tackle the, the piracy in Somalia, and it was a very successful operation, I have to say. And, and I think that that's, you know, a lesson that we can get from the overall operation. That's like, you know, if the countries come together and they have a common target, uh, they can achieve that. So I, I, I don't know how operationally Houthis and, or the Yemenis are uh, and how capable they are. But I'm thinking that if, you know, uh, countries like the U.S., the U.K., Spain, and also China, as we heard earlier on, that has joined in the past that kind of attempt. And, you know, Chinese government has mentioned several times that it's on, on its interest to maintain all the arteries open for global trade, because, as we know, um, China has the nickname of the global factory. So they really want to be able to send all their goods uh, around the globe. So I think it's in the interest of most of the countries around the globe. So that's why they're going to put a lot of effort, I think, to maintain the artery open. And, you know, we have also to consider in the equation that Panama Canal has a lot of issues at the moment because of the global warming, and a lot of goods cannot be shipped from that route. So uh, that is also increasing further the importance of the Suez Canal and the transportation of the goods through the Suez Canal. Thomas, your view on this, is, is this operation doable? Is it possible with a, a, a few, well, no, not just a few, with U.S. naval assets, French naval assets, there are 10 countries in this coalition. Is this possible to essentially make this waterway safe enough for all those ships to decide to reroute their traffic through there, given that more than 12 companies so far have said we're, we're, not, we're not sailing through this waterway anymore? It's going to be very difficult, uh, and and part of the uh, answer to that question is going to depend on what are the rules of engagement, uh, which are still not completely clear. A lot of detail is yet to be announced. Is it going to be purely defensive, or are American assets in the region, ships in the Red Sea, going to retaliate uh, against Houthi assets, against Houthi surveillance, radar, missile launch, uh, Houthi port installations on the Red Sea coast? We don't really know that yet. Uh, the Americans have been cautious in, in not committing to directly hit uh, Houthi assets. That would be complicated. Um, the Houthis feel very emboldened right now. They feel borderline hubristic, I think, um, mm. because they do perceive that they are unchallenged inside Yemen, which is uh, probably an accurate assessment. Uh, they have been able to push back against Saudi Arabia. Now they are negotiating with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's withdrawal from Yemen. It's not a peace process. Right, it's a negotiation yeah. of the Houthi victory. So, right now, the Houthis feel that they really have the bigger end of the stick. So, can a maritime mission in the Red Sea help to protect some of the ships uh, by air defense mechanisms and so on? Yes, but will it be enough to convince, as you said, the many companies that are, as we speak, more and more of them announcing that they will not transit through the Red Red Sea? That's difficult, and I'm I, as of now, I'm I'm not convinced that it's going to fully work. I certainly hope so, but it's it's going to be a, a major challenge. And and by the way, something, and again, this is this question is operational in nature. Um, Tomai, if you want to address it, go ahead. James, if you have thoughts as well, go ahead. And, and if this is a detail, then we can move on. But the 
um, Western countries, specifically France, has mentioned, look, they are sending, they meaning the Houthis, they're using Shahed drones, which cost about twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. they are very cheap. And we're shooting them down yeah. with missiles that are worth about a million euros. So this raises question of whether this Western coalition is sustainable as it's presently constructed. The way in which these Western countries intend to protect this waterway, if they're hemorrhaging millions of dollars of euros in missiles when Yemen will be able to launch these really inexpensive drones, is that something that the Western countries can sustain? Um, Perhaps, James. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to think uh, back a few years to Operation Atalanta. It was a different um, schema. Um, In the end, it was successful not only because of um, uh, countering the uh, attacks by the Somali pirates, Boats, the skips that uh, came in and threatened the container and oil uh, traffic going through, but also because it was decided to hit the um, the pirate uh, installations on the Somali coast. It took a long time for that operation to happen, but when it did, it was probably the major factor in stopping uh, the uh, piracy uh, coming out of Somalia. Uh, in a different uh, context here, but nevertheless, I think probably the same sort of inflection point is probably going to be reached at at some juncture uh, when uh, any international maritime uh, protection force is going to have to decide whether or not it it takes on the uh, missile launching sites uh, on land uh, Mm. uh, of the uh, Houthis. Of course, should that happen, there are dangers there because uh, you you risk getting involved in the Yemeni, what's left of the Yemeni civil war. Now, the Houthis Mm. may have uh, won for the moment, but they haven't yet consolidated their position. And there is a danger there of getting dragged into yet another civil conflict within Yemen. So this is a very difficult uh, uh, thing to achieve. And uh, I suspect uh, there'll be a lot of head scratching in military planning um, uh, places in Washington and elsewhere as to when and if that should happen. In other words, attacks on land against the Houthis if they continue with their current uh, policy. However, uh, let's not forget, at the end of the day, the Houthis justify all of this uh, because they want to support the Palestinian cause. Anybody that's been to Yemen knows just how strong the feelings are about that. If the Gaza war comes to an end, uh, that also may have uh, an effect on the uh, Houthi strategy. You raise uh, a very interesting it, point uh, there. You raise stop. a very interesting point, which is, as you say, that the, the Houthis are doing this in the name, in support officially of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, do you think that what they're doing in the Red Sea right now by by putting this military pressure on this waterway, do you think that can actually move the needle in the Israel-Gaza war? It hasn't so far. I doubt it, frankly. I, I don't think it's going to be a, a major factor in changing the positions of the principal players, certainly not the Israelis, and I doubt the Americans uh, in that war. Um, so um, I, I don't think there will be um, uh, a direct effect on, on that. Uh, that will depend on other things. But... Should the Gaza war come to an end, should we move on to the next stage, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. um, then uh, the Houthis uh, may well um, dial down uh, their actions because uh, they're, they're kind of left high and dry, so to speak, uh, in terms of what they're trying to do. Stavros, what would it take for the major shipping companies to give the green light to go back through the Red Sea? Because at least 12 of them, as, as of the time of recording of this show have pulled out of this route and they're rerouting. What would it take? Is there a benchmark where they say, for them, it's a business decision, right? They need to make sure it's safe enough. 
to be able to send all their goods. Correct. And you said exactly what is all, all about, what is driving the decision. It's, it's businesses, and also we have to, they have to balance between risk and profitability. So they have to find out, is it worth it to pass through the Red Sea at the moment, or should they be more secure and spend a bit of more time, uh, stretch a bit of more of my assets and my capabilities so I can have a safe uh, passage and navigation? And I think that's a question that the, each individual company has to take because, as you know, each company has different business strategies and different uh, business cultures. So based on their own uh, ideas and beliefs, they're going to move forward. Mm. Thomas, as you watch all of this unfold, we're in a, we're in a, uh, what may be an inflection point here, right? The U.S. is just uh, bringing together this international coalition to try and secure this waterway. As you watch this unfold, we don't know yet exactly where this goes, how this ends. What are you going to be watching out for? What signals are you interested in? I will be watching for the rules of engagement in more detail, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, for the coalition and what that implies for uh, possible retaliation against directly against Houthi assets inside Yemen. It's not clear to me if the U.S. wants to do that for fear of escalation uh, in the Red Sea and beyond with the Houthis and perhaps with other armed groups that Iran backs throughout the region, but also for fear of Houthi retaliation. I mean, right now, there's a very delicate balancing act that is being played in those political talks between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. They have been going on for a long time now, more than a year. There have been rumors of an imminent deal between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis for a long time now. It keeps on getting pushed back. One of the reasons why it keeps on getting pushed back is that the Houthis, again, perceive that they have the big end of the stick and that they are consistently asking for more, trying to extract more concessions for Saudi Arabia. So this might also be part of the Houthi calculus here to try to extract more concessions to legitimate, mm. to consolidate and to institutionalize their domination of what they want to be uh, now a, a phase of post-war uh, Yemen. So if the U.S. retaliates and hits Houthi assets, radar sites, surveillance sites, port installations on the Red Sea coast, uh, that may be, in a way, the best way to establish in narrow terms a deterrence in the Red Sea, which is probably necessary to reopen it to shipping. But the risk in doing that is that the Houthis would retaliate, not necessarily only against the U.S., but possibly also against Saudi Arabia or the UAE or other countries in the region, um, which would throw off potentially other political uh, dynamics at play, notably those Saudi Houthi talks. So this is a very difficult equation for the U.S. to try to figure out, to try to strike the right balance. Um, because actions that may be necessary on one front may cause damage on another front. So I'm, I'm not sure what the, the right way out for the U.S. is here. James, if we gameplay this, what do you think are the realistic scenarios? I mean, one, one that we've kind of put out there um, is, well, perhaps this, this multinational naval force actually neutralizes the Houthi threat uh, to this waterway. I suppose that's one positive scenario. What do you think are the other realistic ones? I think there's a fair chance <clears throat> that the deterrent effect of that multinational force, particularly if it's not just Western countries, uh, but if uh, the Gulf, uh, I think the Gulf probably would be very supportive, whether it will join in materially, I don't know. Uh, and uh, they haven't China yet, except for Egypt. Bahrain. Bahrain is the only Arab country they in this They haven't yet, except for Bahrain, and you would have expected that, given this the base of the U.S. fleet. But um, uh, also important, as I said before, is China and to some extent Japan and some of the Asian countries. If they join in too, 
And I, I think that would be uh, um, uh, a massive deterrent, uh, not only to the Houthis, but also to the Iranians. Uh, don't forget the Iranian relationship with China plays in the background here as well. Uh, and it might just be successful without having to launch major attacks uh, on the um, mainland of Yemen. Uh, certainly one would hope for that. Um, realistic, uh, perhaps, um, mm. but um, maybe one's hoping for too much here. But there is this danger that if uh, the multinational force, whatever it's called, does get dragged into further civil conflict on the Arabian Peninsula, that could be pretty dangerous for all people, all concerned. And we shouldn't exclude that. And we don't have much time left in the show, but can I get you to address quickly something that Toma has said several times, that the Houthis may have an eye not just on the uh, Israel-Gaza war, but also <laughs> on their peace deal that they're currently negotiating uh, with the Saudis, and this may help them put pressure on the Saudis. Your, your views on that? I think up to a point that might, might work, um, but uh, I'm not sure it'll, uh, it'll make their situation that much better. There is a bit of hubris. Somebody mentioned hubris earlier uh, mm. amongst the Houthis at the moment. Uh, there, there is a danger that they're overreaching here. Uh, they have a strong interest to calm things down with Saudi Arabia. Uh, they don't want to get uh, back into the sort of situation they were in three or four years ago. Uh, and if they do, their own position domestically uh, will be tremendously weakened. Uh, it is not that Saudi Arabia necessarily will re-enter uh, a civil war in Yemen, but they have to be very careful about that in what they're calculating. So I think so far, but no further, perhaps, uh, could be the principle uh, here if the Houthis are trying to do that vis-à-vis -vis leverage on the Saudis. Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. That completes the regional picture of this conversation. Thank you so much to all of you gentlemen. Thomas Junot, James Moran, Stavros, Karen Paridis, thank you for joining us today and for taking the time. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Victoria Gatenby, Laurent Peter, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Fadzel Yahya. The program was edited by Andre Osthuizen, Zaina Bader, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we're looking at some of the stories that define 2023, from drones in Ukraine to the rise of ChatGPT. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.